Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Join us as we explore three unique destinations that help make California such a special place to visit. Today, we'll join celebrity chef Curtis Stone on a culinary tour of California's Central Coast. Stone's team at his Beverly Hills restaurant, Maud, ventured north from L.A. to find inspiration for a new menu, and they struck pay dirt. We literally sat out on the water, on a barge, drinking wine with these incredible oysters, and then your mind starts wandering. You think, well, if we can't bring our guests out here, how do we bring this to them? Also, Olympic gold medalist Johnny Mosley spent countless hours training at Squaw Valley Ski Resort. They even named a run after him. He'll share a few of his favorite activities in the Lake Tahoe area. Well, I mean, if you get access to someone's boat, I mean, water skiing out there first thing in the morning is is an experience. It feels a little crisp when you get in, but man, it's a day maker. Plus, we'll talk with author Matt Jaffe, an outdoorsman who's crafted a lively itinerary in Death Valley National Park. It's all coming up on California Now. This is California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. Our mission is to introduce you to some of the people and places that make the Golden State such a great place to visit. Our hope is that you'll hear something that inspires you to plan a California adventure of your own. My next guest is a familiar face to anyone who watches cooking shows on television. Curtis Stone is an accomplished chef who first rose to prominence while working with Marco Pierre White in London. Curtis was soon pegged as a camera-friendly TV personality and has since appeared on The Today Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, as well as many food-focused programs like Top Chef Masters and Master Chef. He runs the kitchens of two Los Angeles restaurants, Gwen and Maud, and he's joining us now from Gwen. Welcome, Curtis. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. So, you know, I feel like I know you from your various TV (laughs) appearances, and I imagine a lot of people feel the same way, but... What many people probably don't know is that you run these two restaurants in L.A. Um, They're named after your grandmothers, and uh, they're both very distinct. Uh, Let's start with Gwen. Can you tell us about her and it? Certainly. Uh, Well, Gwen was my mum's mum, my nan. Uh, She grew up in rural Victoria, and uh, was a big influence on my life. And I named my second restaurant after her, so it's called Gwen, of course. We're here on Sunset Boulevard, just on the corner of Seward, right in the middle of Hollywood. Um, and the idea for the restaurant is it's a, um, a butcher shop, first and foremost. That's kind of the heartbeat of the building. You walk in, whether you come into the shop or whether you come into the restaurant, you walk in through an old-school kind of European-style butcher shop. We do whole animal butchery. We make all our own charcuterie, and um, we buy the best of the best stuff from Wagyu from Australia and, you know, incredible things locally as well. Um, and then uh, you walk through, if you're here for the restaurant, you walk through the butcher shop and into the dining room and um, the restaurant is, uh, is a beautiful big old uh, uh, fire centric, everything's cooked over a fire um, in the dining room and it's sort of, it's not a steakhouse but I guess that's the closest parallel that you could, you could pull, meat centric restaurant. Sounds great. So let's talk a little bit about your other restaurant, Maud. Um, Maud recently underwent some big changes, wine pairings are now a big part of the focus uh, at that restaurant now, right? Yeah, so Maud's a 24-seat dining room. It's in Beverly Hills on South Beverly Boulevard. Um, sorry, South Beverly Drive. Uh, and we are... I should know where it is. I drive there every day. Um, and we... Um, it's, it's been... 
you know, a, a fun little restaurant. It, the idea of it initially was to start with one ingredient per month. We'd de- develop a 10-course tasting menu out of that one ingredient. Um, and we'd try and show off the ingredient in all of its glory. You know, we'd use the seeds and the blossom and the, the, the roots and the stems, and we'd really drill down onto that ingredient um, and try and show it in a lot of different forms. And uh, so that was the idea. We ran with it for four years. It was... Um, you know, a very successful restaurant. It got voted LA's best restaurant at one point by by LA Weekly. We're very proud of it. And, um, you know, four years in, we just sort of decided it was time for a change. And the wine pairings had been a really big part of the restaurant. So we thought, let's focus on wine regions. And we basically switched an ingredient, you know, some kind of produce, like a beet, for instance, um, for a wine region. So we started, the first menu was done in Rioja. Uh, the second in Burgundy, and the third central coast of California. And the idea, um, effectively, is we take a small group of the team and we go there and we get inspired by the food and the wine and the history and the culture, and um, we try and come up with a 10-course tasting menu that um, that typifies what that region's got to offer. That sounds great. And also the fact that you're able to actually travel and maybe have to travel to those places to conduct your, your research on the food and wine um, sounds like a really great way to, uh, to bring that stuff to your restaurant. My wife always says as I leave for these trips, enjoy your research as she puts her fingers up in inverted <laughs> commas. Uh, um, you know, and, and she's right. You know, it is, uh, it's a very fun way to do some research, but I think you've got to enjoy your job and you should really get a lot out of it and it should give you a lot as much as you give it and you know cooking's given me so much and um you know i think that that constant travel that constant learning is is sort of what's always kept me really on the edge of my seat inspired so um you know it's nice to share that with some of the team now and and be doing these trips with them and um the results have been pretty uh pretty cool so far so, so when you were going on this research trip along the central coast of California, take us along for, for a moment. What were some of the highlights as you kind of tasted your way north? You know, the Santa Barbara and beyond area of the central coast is, is literally in our backyard. And um, we get a lot of ingredients from there. And of course, they've gone through some, some hard times over the last 12 months. They had fires and they had mudslides. And um, there was, there's a lot of uh, disturbance to that region. And, and if you can imagine, um, to our friends who run restaurants and hotels and bars and the like in the hospitality business up there, um, they've been really suffering. So we sort of thought, you know, why not focus on an area that we know and love? We've, we've been using wines and ingredients from there for, for some years. So let's um, turn our attention there. And we, I mean, we, we really started our trip, I guess, in Santa Barbara, which is uh, one of my favorite places to go for a weekend. But, um, you know, there's so much beautiful stuff that not only comes out of the, uh, the local farms and produce that comes out of there, but also uh, out of the ocean. So we started off there um, with um, this incredible woman named Stephanie, who's actually an uni diver. She goes out for urchins um, every morning. And we started uh, by meeting her on her boat and cracking open sea urchins and eating them straight out of the shell, which was a pretty beautiful way to begin. I'm sure you've used uni before and oysters before, but actually seeing how they're produced and where they're harvested, how they're harvested really makes a difference. It sure does. Um, And, you know, meeting the locals that have such passion around it. And in fact, it's helped us to sort of shape the menu because when you, as a chef, you quite often start with an ingredient and you want to show off the technique that you've learned as a chef. You know, you you think to yourself, what can I do with this ingredient? And, And in some cases, 
The answer should be nothing. You should do nothing. You should just buy it in its freshest, rawest, most beautiful form and serve it just that way. Um, it, you know, it made us sort of stop and think eating uni on the water and, you know, cracking, shucking oysters out on the oyster bay. Um, and you sort of think, God, if only we could do this for our guest, because mm. um, some of the wine team that day had been out and found some incredible rosés, and they brought the rosés to us. They joined us at the uh, oyster farm, and we literally sat out on the water on a barge drinking wine, you know, drinking different types of rosé with these incredible oysters. And mm. then your mind starts wandering. You think, well, <laughs> if we can't bring our guests out here, how do we bring this to them? And um, right. I think what we'll end up doing is when the guests arrive, we'll sort of show them some of the incredible seafood in its rawest form, literally open to order, um, whether that be the oysters and the uni or the crab, that, you know, even the mussels that we sort of found along the way. And then um, further into the menu, we'll, we'll cook with it and we'll sort of see whether we can do something as beautiful as, uh, as just opening it natural. So you'll get to sort of see the shellfish in a few different ways. That sounds amazing. All right, let's, let's keep going. I'm guessing you visited a few farms along the way. We sure did. Um, but then the next stop that really caught my eye, I suppose, was the, uh, the creamery that we went to. It's called Stepladder Creamery, a little further um, up uh, into the central coast. Um, and uh, uh, Santa Ynez, sort of Paso Robles, I guess, was that, that sort of leg of the, the drive. We stopped at this, this ranch, Stepladder, um, and we had uh, a couple, um, Jack and Michelle, who... Uh, decided to throw in, um, I think they're in the tech world, but whatever whatever um, industry they were sort of working away at before, they decided to throw it all in and, and go and milk some goats. And uh, hmm. it's a pretty, pretty interesting, um, I, I often joke with my wife when things get a bit chaotic in my life, I'm like, that's it, I'm moving to the country and I'm milking a bloody goat. Because I feel <laughs> like that would be, you know, the ideal um, way of life. And it was pretty cool meeting with these guys because they've done just that, you know, and they have pigs and they have cattle and they have uh, goats of course they milk the goats each morning they turn it into this incredible goat's cheese um, that they that they're producing there so it was really cool spending a day with them watching that whole process understanding how they're making the cheese um, you know and and just sort of just seeing how diverse this landscape really is you know that that morning we were on the water like I said you know in an oyster bay and then a little bit later on that afternoon you're in you know pretty thick sort of uh country uh where there's these you know beautiful grazers doing doing incredible work so um so that was our next stop hmm. did anything surprise you about your road trip i mean did you did you learn about a product you thought you knew but maybe you really didn't know that well Look, I think what was so interesting was the culture of California. And being in L.A., you can forget. You know, you feel like you're, you're well and truly in California, which, of course, you are. But you only have to drive an hour north to sort of rediscover the Californian culture that's still alive and well. And there's this kind of easygoing, hippie-esque kind of um, attitude towards towards life and whether it's a couple that run off and milk goats for a living or um, you know meeting meeting people on the ocean that have sort of a bit of a surfy vibe um, I love that it, it sounds like with this trip you you've successfully merged your work with something the rest of us would call fun I mean did, did you gain a newfound appreciation for the central coast 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's such a beautiful... I've always known the Central Coast is a good place to surf and lay in the sun and hang out and get a good bite to eat, you know. Um, But when you get up there and sort of dig into the cuisine and the culture of uh, the region a little more, it blows you away, you know. It's just such um, such a beautiful place to be and you know you're absolutely right you know I, I guess I have found a way to um, make my work my fun um, or make my fun my work but uh, <laughs> you know it's uh, it's a pretty pretty incredible place to do it and um, it, it's just so it, the variety of stuff that's on offer is really unbelievable you know the most beautiful countryside followed by gorgeous coastal regions well, it's amazing it's, it's so great to be able to, to kind of you know take the bounty of what's what's nearby and in your backyard and be able to bring it to your restaurant it really is and i think that's the one thing that stood out to us that we're um maybe underplaying a little bit from that central coast is just how fantastic the shellfish is you know this menu is invariably going to end up close to pescatarian we might have one meat course out of the 10 um, but for the most part you know you just can't not use all of this beautiful shellfish that's right on your doorstep uh, we went to a mussel farm and um, we'll be just certainly showcasing those so yeah just so many amazing things to to show all right you know we've been talking about food mostly so far but wine pairing is key to the concept you're following at Maud. What were some of the key takeaways you found? In other words, like, what will we be drinking when we stop by, Curtis? Um, in the Central Coast, goodness me, there's so many different varietals grown. So, you know, from sparkling um, wine that's made out of Chardonnay grapes and, um, you know, right through, of course, to Chardonnays and Pinots that the regions are well well known for, but um, you know they're also growing Cabernet and Syrah in, in the same region. So um, we got to visit a variety of uh, different places. You know, some that are making things a little bit more in a European style, and some in a very progressive new um, way. So you know, from uh, the places that we stopped off down in, um, uh, and I'm going to pronounce this terribly, but you know, in Santa Barbara, we stopped at a place called Arbon Climat, um, which fantastic wines um, mm. we moved further up the coast um, and you, you, goodness I'm, I'm trying to think there was so much that we saw and so many different um, places that we we just loved but I guess the idea of the central coast is you're going to see lots of variety and um, you know I, I always say to people that come along to these dinners you can take it really educationally and you can sit there and you can learn a lot if you want to. We've got amazing sommeliers and wine directors that um, have dedicated their life to, to the grape juice and that, you know they're happy to talk about it all night long. But you also don't have to think too much if you don't want to. You know, you can just sort of come in and we've done all the work for you. We've found wines that work perfectly with the dishes that we've created. And you can sort of just sit back and let it all just roll over nice and easily. That's great. I know there's this expression, if it grows together, it goes together. Uh, Is that true? Is there a trick to wine pairing? I mean, how do you know when you've really nailed it? Look, my attitude is there's no rules, you know, and there should not be. And just like when you're in a kitchen, you think about a dish and you start... A dish is only made up of ingredients. And to me, um, your wine and your food, they go harmoniously together. Um, 
you know, and that's when you think about them as ingredients. What's going to work well together? Um, that idea of if it grows together, it goes together. It's a good one, you know, and it's usually um, it usually makes sense. You know, we we were lucky enough to be invited up to Mount Eden uh, Vineyard with Jeffrey Patterson, who's um, who, who hosted us up there, and he said you've got to come up for a walk up onto this mountain. And we walked up, and you could see all the way down to the ocean. And we'd been to the Abalone Farm uh, in Monterey that morning, and we said. Uh, well, we, we, you know, we should have a little barbecue and cook you some abalone to say thanks for having us up here. And he said, oh, I've got a wine that I think might work with that. And we, we hmm. went and opened a bunch of the Chardonnays that he, he had and uh, we cooked abalone and seaweed on a little grill up on this mountaintop. And it's so idyllic and fantastic. But it turns out that that wine worked really, really well with that abalone. And um, to your point, they're grown you know, 10 miles from one another. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Well, I, I think I need to conduct some research of my own at your restaurant. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, <laughs> how does all of this research manifest itself on the plate? I mean, what are, what are a few of the spotlight dishes visitors tend to love the most? There's a rock crab dish that people are really loving. There's a squid dish that everybody that's had so far loves, and that's with some, some chilies. We found these incredible uh, chilies when we were up there. Of course, everything grows well in California, but as we move into summer, chilies one of those real, you know, fantastic ingredients. So we're, we've made a fermentation out of um, some of the local chilies and um, smoked it. So we'll be cooking mm. the squid, this baby squid whole over a, a bichiton grill, which is a certain type of charcoal, and um, the smokiness of the squid but also the delicate nature of that squid goes really well with the um, with the chilies too. So, uh, I th- yeah, I think that's a dish that everyone's really enjoying. Sounds amazing. All right, so before we let you go, Curtis, we have to know, how is the quarterly wine pairing concept working out? Is this something you plan on uh, plan to keep doing in the months ahead, or is there something new on the horizon? Look, we're really enjoying it. We sort of said at the start of the year, we'll commit to doing four menus like this. This is our third. Um, we're really enjoying it. I'm not 100% sure whether we'll, we'll be able to keep going or not. But, um, you know, look, I hope so. I think uh, the guests are really loving it and everybody that's coming in is enjoying it, whether you're a, a wine collector or an aficionado who wants to come in for that experience or if you're just dipping your toe into the water, it seems to be working for everybody um, that comes in. You know, th- of course, there's no need to do the... Um, there's no necessity to do the wine pairing either. You can come in and, um, and, and not drink wine at all and just sort of see the expression of the region um, from a culinary perspective so uh, yeah it's 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 good it's it's a it's been a busy year and we're we're really happy so fingers crossed we get to do it all again next year well it sounds like a delicious and great idea thanks so much Curtis my pleasure lovely chatting to you thanks for the time thank you you can sample Curtis Stone's fine dining cuisine at his two Los Angeles County restaurants Gwen and Maud You can find links to the reservation desk and everything we talked about today at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You're listening to the California Now podcast. I'm Satirius Johnson. Johnny Mosley was born in Puerto Rico, grew up in Marin County, won an Olympic gold medal in Nagano, Japan, and hosted Saturday Night Live in New York City. But today, we want to talk to him about another destination, Lake Tahoe. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Johnny. (laughs) Thank you, Satirius. Great to be here. So, you know, this segment is called the lightning round. So I'm going to toss a bunch of rapid fire questions your way, and you should feel free to answer them like somebody is chasing you down the hill, okay? 
<laughs> all right. All right. Let me get ready here, though. I got to do a couple push-ups because it sounds like <laughs> I'm about to compete in something. Oh, that's right. right. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. <laughs> What's your favorite place to ski in the area? Oh, I'm a Squaw Valley guy all the way. That's where I grew up skiing, and that's where my favorite run is. It happens to be named after me, Johnny Mosley's run, and I can just do nonstop laps on that all day. All right, let's change seasons now. Uh, the snow is melted. It's a beautiful day, and you want to be outside. Where are you going, and what are you doing? I am going for a dip in the lake. I mean, that is the fountain of youth, Lake Tahoe. You get in there, and uh, you feel rejuvenated. What about something for the kids? Uh, one of the things my kids look forward to every year is the Truckee Bike Park. This is so cool. It's kind of a community effort, and they have a pump track there and jumps if you want to get after it and BMX. Uh, we hit that thing at least a couple times a summer. And something your wife loves in the area. One of the things that people forget about in Tahoe is Donner Lake. Oh, man, this is like next-level crispness. This is the lake my wife really likes. And there's these piers you can drive up and just pull over and run out on the pier and jump in and come right back. These public piers, like it's so easy to access. I will often be driving back from, you know, home to the Bay Area on a hot day. I'll just yank over and go for a dip and get back in the car in like 10 minutes. So awesome. How about a, a family-friendly activity? One of my favorite things to do uh, when the snow melts in Squaw is hike up Shirley Canyon and bring a little fishing pole. And uh, there's a little lake in the top and you can actually get trout in there, believe it or not. What about on Lake Tahoe itself? Uh, what's your favorite th thing to do on the water? Well, I mean, if you get access to someone's boat, I mean, water skiing out there first thing in the morning is, is an experience. It feels a little crisp when you get in, but man, it's a day maker. So that's my favorite thing to do out there is, is water ski and wakeboard. All right. And one more looking across this entire region. Tell us about a, a hidden gem that people should know about, but don't. There, there is a specific hike in Bliss State Park that uh, takes you along the shore and down into Emerald Bay. It is magical. Uh, you have to do it. Um, and when you get down to Emerald Bay, you can jump in the water and swim out. Last time there was like a broken log out there and we climbed up to the top of it and tried to jump off it. I belly flopped trying to do a, do a backflip, which was hilarious for my kids, but... <laughs> It's you, you can't miss it. D.L. Bliss State Park, uh, the hike along the lake down to Emerald Bay. Amazing. All right. You crushed it, Johnny. If I could bestow you with a gold medal for podcast interviews, I would. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't won anything in a long time. Thank you. Thank you. Johnny Mosley is an Olympic gold medal skier and the star of Johnny Mosley's Wildest Dreams, a video series that has him traveling across California and trying all sorts of high adrenaline activities. You can find links to Wildest Dreams and to all the places he discussed today at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You're listening to California Now. My next guest has spent a lot of time in a part of California that has an almost mythological status, Death Valley National Park. Everything about this region is extreme. The park covers 3.3 million acres and is bigger than any other national park in the lower 48. It's also the hottest and driest place in America, with summer temperatures peaking north of 120 degrees. The average rainfall is just two inches per year, and yet author Matt Jaffe swears that Death Valley is a fantastic place to visit. Matt, welcome to the California Now podcast. Thank you. You've traveled extensively in and around Death Valley. So, so tell us, what makes this seemingly inhospitable place worth a visit? 
Well, I think the the main thing about Death Valley is its its openness and bigness, uh, for lack of a better word, um, because Death Valley is one of those places that really reorients your sense of what the world's about. Uh, I know that sounds a bit grandiose, but but it is true, uh, especially when you're coming from a major city like Los Angeles and you get out into this really vast um, expanse and you know, with huge skies, towering mountains, salt flats, you name it, um, there's a real feeling of liberation um, where you're kind of reminded just how big the world really is. All right, I buy that. So, so your mission today is to help us hack Death Valley. By the time our, our conversation is over, our listeners... Uh, should have enough information to begin planning a trip of their own. So are you up for the challenge? I am. (laughs) Okay, great. Let's start with a bit of geography. I feel like I know where Death Valley is on a map generally, but how remote is it? Like how long does it take to get there from, say, Los Angeles? Uh, You can get to Death Valley in under five hours, and it's actually a pretty easy drive uh, from L.A. Um, It's northeast of the city. Um, You basically shoot up. State Highway 14 and take a few more roads. And, um, you know, again, it's an easy drive and it's a spectacular drive, too, because uh, one of the things I find remarkable about California, and especially Southern California, is how quickly you can get out of the city and just be into a very different world. It sounds like actually just getting to the park makes for a great road trip. Oh, yeah, it's a terrific road trip. You're, you're not on any kind of major freeways once you're outside the L.A. area. It's much more two-lane roads, um, very drivable roads, you know, nothing, nothing too hectic. Um, and, again, just beautiful scenery, Joshua trees in, in some places, some spectacular views along the way. I imagine there are certain times of the year you'd want to go to Death Valley and other times when you might want to steer clear. When, when do you think is the best time to go? I would say the best time to go is between November and into April. Um, you might get October's not a bad month either, but it's remarkable because you hear the name Death Valley and you just think it's it's going to be scorching hot. But during the late fall, winter, and early spring months, um, weather conditions are almost perfect. And in fact, it can almost be cold at night. Mm. And the other thing, though, is that for a lot of people, the time to go is during the summer, which <laughs> really sounds kind of crazy right. considering that it's most days it goes over 120 degrees. But there's a uh, when you go out there, you're always going to be surrounded by Europeans because for them, it becomes this point of pride to have gone out to the hottest place on Earth because <laughs> Death Valley had, has the hottest temperature ever recorded anywhere on Earth which I think was 134 degrees. Wow. All right, so help us build an itinerary. We drive to Death Valley. Mm-hmm. We show up on a relatively cool, say, winter day. What should we do first? The classic thing to do in Death Valley is to wake up before dawn and to go over to, to Zabriskie Point, which is really just a couple miles from uh, the main area where you would stay there. Uh, Zabriskie Point is famous for the... As the sun comes up, it begins to light up the the Badland formations right below the point, uh, particularly this one kind of triangular um, outcropping called Manly Beacon. And it's just remarkable to watch the change in color um, 
as the sun comes up higher. And then the other thing that's happening is that the Panamint Mountains on the other side of the, the valley begin lighting up. And whereas the foreground is going to be all kind of golds and yellows, um, the Panamint Mountains are going to take on kind of a pinkish purple cast. And that really is kind of the definitive morning experience um, in Death Valley. Uh, and there are going to be a lot of people out there, but even though even though it's not necessarily uh, an experience of solitude, you're, you're going to be blown away. Yeah, it's not um, something you see every day, right? <laughs> no, definitely not. And... Um, and it's it's a great photographic challenge to 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 just get that that great moment, um, and then right by there, there's a very easy uh, dirt road that explores another area of Badlands um, in, in Twenty Mule Team Canyon, um, <clears throat> and it only goes on for about three miles. But it it's kind of nice to get out in the middle of some of these formations as opposed to just see them from a distance, and that that you can do in maybe. 10 or 15 minutes so before you've even had breakfast you've had two really great experiences you know being that it's a remote place are there hotels in death valley i mean where do you eat where do you sleep um there are a limited number but there are a couple very special places you can stay one of which is the um the inn at death valley which goes back to 1927 it's a luxury hotel which you don't expect in Death Valley. I think mm-hmm. most people just assume you're going to be camping or, right. um, you know, staying in a very basic motel. But um, the Inn at Death Valley was recently redone. It had a multi-million dollar renovation, which was probably the biggest change there um, in a number of decades. And it's kind of this Mediterranean mission-style inn um, it's literally an oasis because it's fed by um, water from a natural spring. That's what they use for for their water supplies. There's a, a pool that is a steady somewhere between 82, 85 degrees because, it, again, it's fed directly from, from the spring. Right, it's just and naturally that warm. Yeah, yeah. And um, the inn has, has an outstanding restaurant that really tries to emphasize desert type ingredients you know dates and pomegranates and things like that and um there's a spa there so you're doing anything but roughing it all right so okay let's say it's uh day two in death valley what's on our to-do list well i'm gonna tell people to wake up early again and one of my favorite spots is there's an expanse of sand dunes near stovepipe wells which is another area where there are hotels and, and restaurants. Um, there's an area called Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes. They're not particularly tall. Uh, I think the tallest dunes are about 100 mm. feet, although in, in the northern part of Death Valley, there's an area called Eureka Dunes, which are, I believe, the highest sand dunes in, in the country. But um, what's, what's nice about the Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes is you can go out, and especially early in the morning, you can track the activity from the night before because there are often coyote tracks and other animals that because the winds haven't picked up yet, the tracks are still clearly visible in the sand. And it's it's very interesting because people think of Death Valley as being lifeless, but there are a number of mammal species. There are um, 
a fair number of birds, uh, not surprisingly a lot of lizards, and there there are even fish in Death Valley. There are these tiny little fish called desert pupfish, um, but there's a very easy trail that follows a, a boardwalk at at the Salt Creek Interpretive Trail, and that's not too far away from the, the sand dunes, and you walk out there and say... Um, it's a desert salt marsh, and if you look into some of the areas where there's free-flowing water year-round, mm-hmm. uh, you can see these tiny little fish called desert pupfish. And in the, I think, uh, around March, they're very active because that's like the mating season, and you can see um, the males defending territory and chasing after the females. And it's kind of a miracle, in, in a way, when when you think about how hot and dry Death Valley is that you, you have these native fish living out there. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing we have time for, say, one more stop before we head back to L.A. and civilization. So what's the last best thing to see before we leave? Oh, it's hard to make a choice. But um, one of my favorite places in the park, and this is a little bit of a drive going north, more into the northern reaches of the park, there's a spot called Ubihibi Crater. And... That's the crater of a volcano that erupted about 2,100 years ago, and it's pretty huge. Um, it was originally about 800 feet deep, but it's been filled in parway with debris over the years, so now it's it's about 600 feet deep. But there's a trail that, about a mile and a half long trail that circles along the, the rim of the crater, and you get very impressive views out over the landscape. Ubihibi Crater is part of a larger volcanic field. And then just looking down into the crater is is very impressive. It's just a, it's colorful, um, it's deep, and it goes back to that whole point of how Death Valley recalibrates your, your sense of the size of the earth. Because here it's, relative to the rest of Death Valley, it's a relatively small feature, but when when you're standing on the rim of it, it just looks enormous. Great advice, Matt. Thank you so much. Sure. Matt Jaffe was a senior writer for Sunset Magazine for more than 20 years and still writes for the publication. You can find his prose in Los Angeles Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, Sierra Magazine, and many other outlets. And you can find links to all of the locations Matt mentioned today on our website. Visit california.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please subscribe. As you probably noticed, we took you on a bit of an audio tour of California this episode. Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Carmel, Squaw Valley, Lake Tahoe, Death Valley... One thing I've learned since moving to the Golden State, you're never far away from an epic road trip. All you need is a tank of gas and some inspiration. To help you map out your next California Dream Drive, simply go to visitcalifornia.com and click on one of the itineraries waiting there for you. 